Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. NATO representatives seem to be weakening their hard stance on negotiations as Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg argues that Ukraine will eventually be forced to cede territory. Also, the African Union is calling for the suspension of sanctions against Russia in light of the global food crisis. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Dr. David Walalu. He's an author and international security analyst. Dr. Walalu, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Good to be with you. And you have a great YouTube show. Please tell our listeners about your YouTube show and where they can find it. On YouTube, of course. <laughs> Indeed, it's called the Geopolitics in Conflict. Usually we address geopolitical issues, including this Ukraine fiasco. And uh, you can just find us on, on YouTube at geopoliticsinconflict.com. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said on Sunday that the U.S.-led bloc aims to strengthen Ukraine's position at the negotiating table, but added that any peace deal would involve compromises, including on territory. I find this interesting because what we'd heard was Russia can't win, Russia must lose, um, Ukraine can't stop until they take everything back, including Crimea. And now that seems to be uh, some softening of stances. Dr. Walalu, what do you think is going on here? Well, that, that goes back to the heart of the argument that was made back then. If they're going to fight, they will fight to the last Ukrainian. So they didn't get it back then. But talking about peace right now, you know what it means? It means that NATO and the West doesn't want to lose face because they know it's a lost battle. A peace deal looked possible, in my opinion, about a month or so ago. That was back then when uh, sort of uh, uh, the Russians at that time vowed to end the war. Only if Ukraine agreed to like three, three, I believe two or three principles. One of them, of course, recognizing Crimea. And second, accepting Donetsk and Luhansk as independent states. And there was a third option, I remember, that has to do with uh, not joining NATO uh, uh, officially declaring that. Well, that was that option there. Believe it or not, what Western media didn't disclose is that even Israel, you know, mm-hmm. Israel told the comedian Zelensky, you better accept the deal and move forward. And he, Zelensky, refrained from doing so, especially after the U.S. offered uh, to send $14 billion in aid which basically you and I and your listeners know the objective is to prolong the war. So let me ask you this. With the economic sanctions backfiring and seeming to hurt the U.S. and um, and NATO, uh, EU countries, far more at this point, it seems to be, I don't, can't say about the middle or the long term, but right now, far more than um, Russia in, in two ways. One being, certainly there's the economic side, but the other being, the people of Russia are steeled for a fight. The people of Russia are behind their politicians saying, we feel that we've been backed into a corner, we're going 
going to support you. Let's go ahead and fight. So even if they have some heartache and headache, they're ready to deal with it. Whereas the people in the EU, the people of the West are looking at their leaders and starting to say, hey, how, how do we get into this mess? How did we how do we get out of it? And it doesn't seem like the uh, the squeeze is worth the juice, as they say. Well, it is not. You're absolutely correct, Galen. It looks like, and I've said this before, that's why I'm not shocked or surprised. The sanctions have backfired on the West, on the U.S. We look at that now in the energy prices. You look at it now in, in, in this way, which, by the way, once again, your listeners need to know that there are certain things Western media do not report on intentionally. And I tend to do my own homework, my own research, uh, for not only for the channel, but also for my own uh, writings and so forth. Here is the thing. What the West did not disclose is that Russia is making $800 million a day from the sales of energy, even to some European countries who agreed to pay in a ruble. Okay? You know, that's one. Second thing, you are now noticing the inflation that is going up to the roof in countries like even the UK. UK is not an EU member but it's suffering from the energy prices. You look at the Czech Republic. Czech Republic's uh, inflation is about 16%. Wow. Romania is about 14%. Germany is getting there. France is getting there. Spain is getting there. So Europeans now are realizing what have we got ourselves into? What have our leaders got, in, got us into, especially in Germany, because there is a conversation inside Germany right now among the population they are now comparing Olaf Scholz to the previous chancellor, Angela Merkel. And they are realizing what a big difference. This new guy, Olaf Scholz, has no depth, has no understanding of truly what geopolitics is all about. Thus, he is making the decisions based on emotions and pressure rather than what's good for Germany or the EU or whatever. There's an independent article in the, in the in, excuse me, it's in the actual independent.co.uk. You can find it there. And it starts off with this. I'm just going to read the first paragraph. Ukrainian troops are suffering massive losses as they are outgunned 20 to 1 in artillery and 40 to 1 in ammunition by Russian forces, according to new intelligence painting a bleak picture of the conflict on the front line. The reason I bring that up is two reasons. Number one, we have discussed this from the very beginning and the discussion was it's Bambi versus Godzilla. Ukraine does not is not does not have the military capable to stand up capability to stand up to a military superpower such as Russia. But the mainstream media constantly said, oh, the Russians are, you know, the Ukrainians are winning. They're taking out columns of Russian tanks. They're destroying them. The Russians have no chance whatsoever. And now we get a complete reversal of fortune in the mainstream media. My question is, what can we glean from this sudden change to this revealing what it to me is the truth a dire situation for the ukrainian military well basically when you hear the comedian zelensky saying ukraine will prevail over russia that gives you an idea right there how delusional the guy is i mean has no clue how even to manage this conflict in itself second he gives us an insight into he is not in charge. He is being told what to do. And now he's realizing that with the dissertation of, uh, of the, uh, uh, the soldiers, they are realizing it's a lost war. 
because you got politicians inside Ukraine right now fearing that this long war, okay, might cause now the West to rethink and say, okay, we've done what we could, now you are on your own. It is exactly the same scenario, and I keep going back to this, because using history as my guide, Georgia went through the same scenario. When at that time, uh, Mikhail Shakashvili was saying, uh, Nail was telling him, no, 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 you push against the Russians, you will win, and all that, and realized, uh-uh. At the end, they dropped the guy and let him fight on his own, and Russians took over within five or six days. This is exactly what's happening in Ukraine right now, because even the international community is coming to war fatigue, shall we say, let alone for us here in America. And I'm not going to care about how the Germans feel or how the French feel. I got to care about how Americans feel, because as an American, I got to be concerned about what's, how this is impacting us here at home economically. And when you see where oil prices are, when you see people are struggling to buy food for their kids and all that, 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 that just put the question of, you know, what, what, what is pragmatic here and how come our policymakers couldn't understand or see where this is headed. So when they um, when when we see these kinds of things, you know, and they're saying um, things are bad, um, the other part of it is uh, the politics. The Biden administration is really, really taking it on the chin. And how can they after the debacle in, Af- in Afghanistan and they go in there and they say we're in a proxy war against Russia. We must defeat Russia. We will defeat Russia. This is the big proxy. We're given all the latest weapons. And then they end up being in a position saying we're, we want to we, we need to negotiate with Russia. Now, two things here. Russia doesn't need to negotiate. They do. If 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 you're right, I mean, they're saying we want to give them weapons. We want to give the Ukrainians weapons to be in a position to negotiate. You're only in a stronger position to negotiate if you're winning. They're losing, which means every single day their negotiating position gets weaker. At some point, the Russians can just say, "Nah, we're not going to negotiate. We're going to finish our victory. And then we're going to impose our decision on Ukraine. Now, if you don't want to do that, you can just do an unconditional surrender. Uh, do you think I'm wrong? No, not at all. It just I don't see. The only part that I will have to disagree with your government is the last one, because I do not see how the U.S. will let that go that direction. Even though you start hearing, like, even though I disagree with his policies for uh, 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 foreign policy, that is, Henry Kissinger is saying that, well, Ukraine will have to cede some of the territory. Now you have NATO saying this. Now, how far will the U.S. agree to that? But at the same time, I am seeing the signs. And the signs I'm seeing is that U.S. and NATO have stopped now the drone surveillance flight. That tells me something. When the United States, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the drones and the U-2 aircraft uh, are stopping their, their, their routine surveillance, that tells me something right there that thinks it's coming to an end. Of course, not tomorrow, but they start to realize this is not going to be winnable at any cost. So we may as well just figure out how we can save face. By now, you hear the word negotiations being circulated a lot. That's usually uh, one of the psyops, as you 
you know, diffuse the words and because they want to lean towards, you know, maybe it's time to sit down with the Russians and figure out a solution. Russian President Vladimir Putin met with the president of Senegal and the leader of African Union, Macky Sall, in Sochi here recently. The Rus- the, the, the uh, Africans have been pretty strong. They have refused to go along with the sanctions. And now they're outright saying these sanctions have made the situation worse. They're blaming the food shortage on the sanctions. They're calling for the lifting of the sanctions. I think that looks bad on the West also. Your thoughts on all of that? Why, well, absolutely correct, because you're looking at a almost has a billion people in Africa. So they're going to be worried about their survival. They're going to be worried about the economy. They're not going to care much about the supporting the U.S. or the European Union. They don't care for that stuff. They're going to have to ensure that the wheat that was coming from Ukraine, that the wheat that was coming from Russia and so forth, will have to be maintained. And for them to ensure that, it's by not supporting the United States. And we all saw uh, during the vote in the U.N. that the global south, and, and to me it's an indication for how the next geo or the, the emerging uh, geopolitical landscape is going to be. And Africa is going to play a role into this because, as I always believe, the new geopolitical landscape is going to be in blocks. You're not going to see one, two countries or three dominating the world. No, 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 no. no. It's going to be in blocks. And Africa is kind of setting the stage. It's going to take time for Africa, of course, and to Russia. Russia has been in Africa for quite a while. Now, Chinese are in Africa. The U.S. now sending military to Somalia, and the Africans are wondering why all of a sudden the United States is sending uh, its troops back to Somalia. So the idea becomes that the Africans will have to think about their own interests, and they're like saying, you know, heck with whatever the EU uh, or the U.S. is saying. Well, I, I certainly agree with you there. I think uh, this thing's falling apart, and it's falling apart in ho- at home as we see the stock market, um, you know, today starting to look really, really ugly. I think the pressure is going to be on the Biden administration to find a way out of this from from a lot of <laughs> a lot of parts of this globe. We've been talking with Dr. David Walalu. He's an author, international security analyst. Check out his fantastic uh, YouTube show. The name of it again, Dr. Wal- Walalu? It's a geopolitics in conflict. Yes, check it out. You, that's one you have to subscribe to. I watch it all the time. Dr. David Walalu, thank you. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Democrats and Republicans in the Senate seem to have struck a deal for bipartisan gun legislation, though some activists are calling it pathetically weak. Joining us to discuss this, we have Ted Rawl. Ted's a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist. Ted, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks, Garland. Good to be here. The Washington Post is reporting that a group, a bipartisan group of senators announced Sunday that it had reached a tentative agreement on legislation that would pair modest new gun restrictions with significant new mental health and school security investments, a deal that could put Congress on a path to enacting the most significant national response in decades to acts of mass gun violence. Ted Rawl, your thoughts? 
Well, yeah, um, this is some pretty uh, weak tea, as my mom used to say. <laughs> um, it is a, uh, you know, I mean, like I was particularly unimpressed with uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the assertion that uh, kids who are 18 years old will still be able to buy, buy AR-15s under these proposals. Uh, they'll just have to do a little more paperwork. Uh, you know, I mean, kids can't even rent a car until they're 25 or 26. So, uh, you know, you, that, that looks like after uh, the Uvalde mass shooting to be a place where Democrats and Republicans might have been able to uh, achieve a little bipartisanship and to get the NRA to look the other way for 10 seconds. But apparently that's not true. Um, there's there's really nothing here that really kind of points to any kind of meaningful progress. Um, I suppose the fact that they sat down and talked about gun safety and gun uh, and gun and the, the problem of gun violence at all says, speaks to uh, you know Uvalde having made some sort of impression. But in terms of uh, you know moving the needle and uh, making st- America's uh, schools and businesses and streets safer, uh, I don't think uh, any progress is going to be made. You know, you mentioned the fact that the legislation does not include a provision that would raise the minimum age uh, for the purchase of at least some firearms, rifles from 18 to 21. This was something that was supported by Biden. And we now look at his his inability to get that through and now questioning his effectiveness as a president. And I see a direct correlation, or this is a perfect example of his ineffectiveness, because I never really saw him out on the stump championing this particular provision or any other provisions, but we're reading that he's now in the White House saying, I need to get out there, I need to get out there, I need to get out there. Dude, you needed to have been out there from day one. Dr. Leon, that's really right. I mean, you know, it helps bring us back to uh, the early 2020 primaries uh, when Bernie Sanders was in the lead and then uh, Joe Biden came in late after the beginning of the primary campaign and presented himself as the candidate who would be able to reach across the, uh, the, the aisle to the Republicans that he had worked with in the Senate for decades and would be able to accomplish things that a more uh, you know progressive candidate like Bernie Sanders supposedly might not be able to do. Never mind the fact that Sanders actually did have quite a record of working very well with uh, the other side uh, over during his years in the Senate. Uh, you know, now here we are. Joe Biden's near is uh, nearly 80 years old. He turns 80 this November. He's feeble. He's weak. Uh, I don't know if that uh, how to what extent his uh, inability to perform one of the world's most exhausting jobs uh, is is uh, contributing to his inability to sort of knock heads together uh, among his fellow Democrats and the Republicans, or if it just it was all BS from the very beginning. But uh, certainly the, the widespread perception is that this is an administration with uh, where the captain is uh, not at the helm. He's uh, sleeping down in his uh, ready room and the ship is uh, sort of being steered by God knows who. Let me ask you this. It seems to me, and this is what I'm thinking, that gun legislation has become something other than actual policy. It's kind of like a partisan issue. 
so that nothing can happen on gun it's legislation. A lit, it's a litmus test. Right. Yeah, exactly. So it doesn't matter what you ask if you said, yes, we want to have pass a law that just says all guns should be cleaned now and none of them should be dirty or something, whatever, something that was completely irrelevant that there because and, and like I said, I'm saying if you watch Fox or MSNBC, it's the Democrats are evil, the Democrats are de- evil, the Democrats are evil on Fox. And then you can turn to MSNBC and they can tell you how evil the Republicans are. So it becomes this is something that the evil people on the other side want. So we got to be against it. So now we're at a place where it's pure partisanship and there's no place in the political sphere for even a discussion of nuanced policies because it's just about, well, the bad guys want it so you can't support it. Yeah, no, I think that's true. There is definitely a uh, a sense that the the uh, you know it's it's team politics as usual, and you know that that has set up this um, you know this this scenario where Republicans know that basically they just have to disapprove of everything that Biden wants, and they also know they're coming into power in January. They know that they're effectively dealing with a lame duck administration. Uh, that it's already, uh, you know, it, there's, they, they weren't able to get Build Back Better through. Um, there's not going to be, you know, any substantial progress on student loan forgiveness or anything else. I mean, you know, the Republicans, all they have to do is sit tight and wait for some other news event to eclipse gun violence. And, uh, to, you know, maybe they'll be talking about the crappy stock market, which is now in bear territory officially as of today. Uh, or, you know, whatever. Uh, you can always count on the headlines to change uh, everyone's attention to move to something else. And and they know that they don't really have to deal with this administration. And this administration doesn't have anything to give them to horse trade with or to threaten them with. So, uh, you know, all in all, uh, you know, that's why we're not going to see any progress. I want to take the conversation to, to the point that you just made all the way back to um, election night, or maybe it was the night, no, I think it was the 21st of January when uh, Obama was sworn in. And the report was there was a dinner at the a restaurant called the Oval Room, where Newt Gingrich laid out the strategy to oppose Obama at every turn, that he would get nothing through Congress. And then Mitch McConnell doubled down on that with the statement, we're going to make him a one-term president. And it seems as though that mindset has been locked into, and Joe Biden has been unable to do anything to counter that, to counter that. And Democratic messaging is so inept that I haven't really heard them pronounce anything, defend anything, champion anything that would counter that. No, they haven't. And, you know, I mean, it's really interesting because the Biden administration could just look at some of the ways that Trump did manage to be effective, and that was through his blizzard of executive orders. I mean, when you don't have, the, you know, an effective collaborative relationship between the legislative and the executive branches, uh, the president does have this, uh, in my view, uh, a power that he should not use, but, you know, the ex- he, these executive orders um, that have the force of law and uh, when they're, you know, and then when they're uh, around for a long time sort of become hard to roll back. 
um, like Title 42, right? Um, there's all sorts of stuff like that that you know that, that Biden can get done right now. He could, for example, um, pass a blanket presidential pardon for all nonviolent uh, drug offenders in the United States, uh, the way that Jimmy Carter uh, passed a blanket amnesty of all the Vietnam War uh, era draft evaders. Uh, and you know that that would be massive. It's not something that the Republicans could ever undo. Um, it would be a very positive thing for uh, the for for the United States. It's long overdue. Um, there's lots of stuff like that they, that he could do. I mean, there's a lot of innocent people in prison uh, who could be who could be pardoned right now uh, and released. Uh, the clemency could be issued. There's there's just this, there's they're just not doing anything. They have an incredible amount of power at their disposal, but they act like they don't have anything. Um, here's another thing I'm, uh, you know, Common Dreams has an article, and they basically start off with saying this bill is a joke, right? The Biden team seems to believe believe that the big thing is to say we're working something out with it's this old we work something out with the Republicans. What America wants is the two parties to come together and work something out and get, quote, something done. And what I seem to see every time they do this is something that will infuriate your own base because they want more. And if you don't get it, they would prefer that you fight for what you said you want or what you the, the base wants and not get it than pass eh, much of nothing. And the Republicans are still going to hate your guts anyway because the other party's going to hate your guts. And so what you get is you make your own base even madder and the people that still hate your guts, ah, nothing's changed. Dead. That's right. There was a muckraking journalist 100 years ago named uh, Lincoln Steffens. And he used to say that, uh, you know, if, if a man needed uh, uh, a whole loaf of bread in order to be uh, to, in order to satisfy his hunger, giving him half a loaf of bread might be counterproductive because it would dent his appetite. But then he wouldn't, you know, he he would still starve to death because he didn't get the full loaf loaf of bread that he needed. It would lose he would lose his motivation. He used to use that comparison for politics. Uh, if you sort of do a half measure as a solution, like sort of like the Affordable Care Act, for example, uh, and then you don't come, you don't go all the way through, you sort of give the impression to the public that the issue is kind of been settled and as much as you can get done has been done. But you'd almost be better off without that half solution because you're not – because people without, – without the half solution, it's front and center that this problem still exists and that we have to focus on it as a society and we have to fix it. Um, the thing with this, with this, these half measures on uh, gun violence and you know military style weapons being in the hands of eighteen year old civilians, I mean these are you know the problem's not going to go away even if there's some kind of lame half or in this case one tenth solution to the problem. Uh, the problem will still be there, but the media will sort of move on and say, well, okay, well you know they did that, so now we're on to the next thing. Uh, you kind of really need to insist on something far meatier. Um, a half solution to, is is not always, uh, you know, sort of like a move in the right direction. And to your point, part of there's part of this the statement from these uh, group of twenty senators is families are scared, and it's our duty to come together and get something done that will help restore their sense of safety and security. Well, they're not talking about solving the problem. What they did was they worked to 
the least or lowest common denominator so they could get something done. And by getting something done in their warped minds, they can then claim victory. We have about one minute left. No, that, that's exactly right, Dr. Leon. I mean, they're, they're going to be able to, you know, they're going to run on this, uh, assuming that it works. And then they're going to be surprised when a lot of voters see right through it, because in the end, we're going to have the ultimate metric that determines whether success has happened or not. And that's how many dead children are going to be buried uh, from our schools and other public places uh, in the next year or two. I was asked the question, how many children have to die in in, in order for something to be done? And my answer was, I don't know the answer to that question, but I can tell you the number that have died is not nearly enough. There you go. Uh, we've been talking with Ted Rawl. He's a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist. Go to Rawl, R-A-L-L dot com for more information. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. The French election is extremely close as President Macron's coalition is working with a razor-thin lead. Also, the disastrous political and economic environment in the U.S. are causing many Democrats to second-guess President Biden's announcement that he will seek re-election in 2024. Joining us to discuss this matter, we have Dr. Gerald Horn. He's a professor of history at the University of Houston in Texas. He's an author, historian, researcher, and his latest book is The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Dr. Horn, welcome back to the Critical Hour. Thank you for inviting me. Emmanuel Macron's centrist grouping was neck and neck with a new left-wing alliance led by Jean-Luc Mélenchon in the vote share of the first round of parliamentary elections. You had some pretty some pretty good predictions for this. How do you what do you think about uh, what do you think about the results so far of the French election, Dr. Horn? Well, so far, I would have to say, a la Mr. Mélenchon, that it has been a gigantic step forward. For the left, recall that Mélenchon knocked together a coalition of socialists, communists, and Greens, and his own party, uh, France Unbowed. In fact, if they had been able to unite before the presidential elections, we might be speaking of a President Mélenchon right now. There is a second round of the elections, as you know, taking place on uh, about six days from now, and it is possible that the slogan of that left-wing coalition, Mélenchon as prime minister, uh, will be effectuated. All they need is a majority in the parliament, and then Mr. Macron will have few alternatives except to appoint Mélenchon as his prime minister in this uh, French novelty of so-called cohabitation. Even if Mr. Mélenchon does not become prime minister, I think that this election sends a loud signal, the signal being not only dissatisfaction with the domestic policies of Mr. Macron, but it may also have implications for foreign policy. Note that as of 
Thursday of this week, Mr. Macron, Chancellor Schultz, and Prime Minister Mario Draghi of Italy will be traveling to Ukraine together. It's unclear what their agenda will be, but you only need to scan the headline and read about the rather dispiriting performance of the Ukrainian forces on the battlefield to get an idea of what may be on the agenda. Or you can look at the interview with Henry Kissinger in this past weekend's London Times, where he invokes a slogan that we thought was peculiar to historic Palestine, i.e. land for peace. That is to say that Kiev should seriously consider either acceding to certain land sessions, such as Crimea, such as the Donbass, perhaps other regions, and then sue for peace. Whatever the case, obviously the prognosis for Ukraine going forward is rather grim, and I think that the French elections will not be greeted warmly uh, in Ukraine, nor in its right-wing allies, speaking of Poland and the Baltic republics, uh, who have been uh, pushing the French-German-Italy alliance to turn more to the right, like uh, Warsaw has. And that has not been going very well. But there's still a battle to be waged, because Germany, on the one hand, is in a formal relationship with France. They're the locomotive of the European Union. But Germany, to put it euphemistically, is deeply influenced by the hawks in Washington. And so there's a kind of tug and war for the heart and soul of Berlin, with Paris being on one side and Washington on the other, although, as we've said many times on this program, it's not as if Paris is wholly innocent insofar as they recognize that U.S. imperialism is the global guarantor for world imperialism, particularly French imperialism and its neo-empire in Africa, where France is heavily dependent upon U.S. satellite imagery, uh, not to mention Africa, the mailed fifth of the Pentagon in the heart of Africa. So there's much to be sorted out with regard to these French elections. But we can say this, that it has not been greeted with happiness in the intimate circle of Mr. Macron, although he should think again, because this left-wing surge may help to save his tottering administration, help to rescue France from digging a deeper hole for itself in Ukraine. Does the left-wing surge have less impact because they say that the turnout Sunday hit a record low of 47%. And so the mood being described there is angry and disillusioned. That's one part of the question. The second part of the question is, does a Mélenchon victory, thereby representing a victory on the left, does that give Olaf Scholz cover or strength in helping him decide to go against United States uh, interests. And third part of the question, you touched on this with the right wing, uh, but does a uh, defeat of Le Pen send a, a real big message to these ultra-right 
nationalists that their movements are losing steam? Well, with regard to the latter point, I think it's premature to give last rights to the ultra right wing nationalists. I think that there's too significant a substantial a material base for their ascension, not, li- not least the oxygen that they receive from the superpower on the West Bank of the Atlantic, speaking of the United States of America, where, as we just know, uh, we've been uh, made aware of the plan to have a coup d'etat of these right-wing forces on January 6, 2021. And what's alarming about that is that there's not more alarm. And that tends to suggest to me that this right-wing ultra nationalist surge in the United States will continue to proliferate and therefore will be reaching across the Atlantic, not only to their allies in Kiev and Warsaw and the Baltics, but also in France. Uh, With regard to Mr. Schultz, it's hard to puzzle out of what this will mean. On the one hand, as noted, uh, there is this marriage between France and Germany is a locomotive, as noted, of the European Union. But Mr. Schultz is a social democrat. His foreign minister is a green that has not seemed to have slowed down their hawkish rhetoric with regard to Ukraine. Uh, We can only hope that the defeats on the battlefield will help to inject a note of realism And I think you're going to have to refresh my recollection with regard to question number one. I think question number one had to do with the outcome of the the low turnout in France. Go ahead. Well, yes. I mean, but I think that Mr. Macron might be worried about that because it was expected that his supporters would be storming to the polls to stop this left-wing scourge. The fact that there was a low turnout seems to suggest that his supporters are not necessarily enthusiastic. And that bodes well, it seems to me, for the left. I should also say that the left in France, as you might expect, is heavily dependent upon voters of French nationals of Arab and African extraction. That also sends a message because it suggests that French foreign policy with regard to their homeland, speaking of Algeria, speaking of Senegal, speaking of Benin, etc., will have to, shall we say, adjusted going forward. And that does not necessarily bode well for the hawkishness that inheres in French imperialism. The New York Times reports, many Democratic lawmakers and party officials are venting their frustrations with President Biden's struggle to advance the bulk of his agenda, doubting his ability to rescue the party from a predicted midterm trouncing and increasingly viewing him as an anchor that should be cut loose in 2024. Things are looking bleak for the Biden team. Your thoughts, Dr. Horn? Well, yes, and I happened to see the interview with Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez on CNN yesterday where she refuse point blank to give a full-throated endorsement to Mr. Biden's re-election chances. I also have seen the headlines that suggest that for whatever reason, uh, Kamala Harris, the vice president, is having fundraising soirees in South Carolina. I've also seen the headlines touting a possible candidacy of Governor Gavin Newsom of the state of California. And I also took note 
of these rather pointed references to Mr. Biden, Biden's age, uh, that if he were to serve a second term, he would be closer to 90 at the end of that second term than he would be to 80, uh, the number which now he is closest to of all. So I think that Mr. Biden may want to reconsider running for re-election. He may want to revive the idea that he himself floated, that he was a bridge between generations. And he may want to decide that the Democratic Party needs a fresh start with a new and invigorated and perhaps even younger leadership. So who in your eyes, if they choose the latter, it becomes the kingmaker? Because I'm looking at it here in Maryland, for example, the governor's race, and uh, Tom Perez is using uh, former President Obama in his ads. In fact, Obama's voice does the voiceover of the entire ad. You have um, uh, Glenn Ivey running for Congress, and he is showing photographs of himself with Obama in his campaign. So who becomes the kingmaker in the Democratic Party? Does Joe Biden put his uh, shaky hand on uh, on Kamala Harris? Does uh, Barack Obama put his hand or do the Clintons decide who the next Democratic nominee is going to be or none of the above? It may be none of the above. Uh, we've yet to get a decisive signal from the labor movement, a bulwark of the Democratic Party. And we've yet to hear a decisive signal from elements within the Congressional Black Caucus. But I would urge and encourage the Democratic Party and its constituent uh, members and components to engage in an agonizing reappraisal, uh, to reevaluate how Mr. Biden was sunk in a quagmire in Ukraine which then led to escalating gasoline prices, inflation, and all the rest, which wounded him severely. An agonizing reappraisal about the scattershot, helter-skelter retreat from Afghanistan in August 2021, which in many ways was the beginning of the end for any idea of an invigorated Biden presidency. The Democratic Party really needs not only a spring cleaning, but a summer cleaning, a fall cleaning, and a winter cleaning, too. I think you're right. And the other thing is, Biden, to me, I would say this, he's a symptom of the problem in that they've been, they've handed the steering wheel over to the Liz Cheney's and the George W. Bushes and the um, uh, 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 Bill Crystals of the world, and their foreign policy is run by these crazy neocons. And once you do that, uh, you're heading for the you're heading for the uh, you know, you're heading for the exit. Uh, one minute. Well, and I think, as I've said before, there is a structural problem, which is that the Democratic Party is heavily dependent upon black votes in a settler colonial regime based on white supremacy and enslavement of Africans. That means that they're suspect amongst a goodly number of Euro-Americans in terms of steering this ship of state and choppy waters, particularly concerning foreign policy. So therefore, the leadership has to bend over backwards to show that they're worthy of leadership on foreign policy, which leads to these disasters in Ukraine. Under President Johnson, it led to a disaster in Indochina. Under President Truman, it led to a disaster on the Korean Peninsula. So that's one of the major issues the Democratic Party really needs to sort out. 
sooner rather than later. We've been talking with Dr. Gerald Horn, professor of history at the University of Houston in Texas. He's an author and a historian and a researcher. And his latest book is The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Shady intelligence-related characters and corporations are launching an all-out censorship offensive against alternative and anti-war news sites, The Gray Zone and Consortium News. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Max Blumenthal. He's an investigative journalist and editor at The Gray Zone. Max, welcome to The Critical Hour. Hey, Garland and Wilmer. How y'all doing? We are doing well, Max. The establishment's war against independent media took an even darker turn with revelations by the gray zone that the British government and private disinformation experts like Nina Jankowicz discussed how to damage the gray zone's credibility and funding while raising suspicions about consortium news. Max Blumenthal, what say you? Well, if you think that the arguments of the Department of Homeland Security's disinformation governance board, that they're not actually out to use the power of the state to censor and destroy independent media outlets, you're wrong. Uh, And this proves it. I mean, we have the cold, hard receipts. We have emails, and this is emanating from the UK, where they have a version of the DHS Ministry of Truth already embedded in government, which was actually exposed through previous leaks, including uh, those that we published at the Gray Zone. And it's called the uh, Disinformation Management Agency inside the British Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office. The Foreign Office is the British counterpart to the State Department, and it's run by someone named Andy Price. So basically, just to give you a quick overview, we obtained leaked emails showing that a celebrity British journalist who poses as a leftist used to be a Trotskyite in the 19. 19- 80s and is now a you know a hardcore interventionist obsessed with mobilizing progressive support for the NATO proxy war in Ukraine and destroying all leftist critics. His name is Paul Mason, who has previously advised Jeremy Corbyn and tried to move his advisors in a pro-war direction. That Paul Mason was working with an intelligence contractor named Emil Khan to convene a summit of people who wanted to destroy the gray zone, all of whom were at least intelligence adjacent. And according to one email from Emil Khan, Paul Mason's buddy, they were going to arrange arrange the relentless deplatforming of the gray zone. Because of our reporting, they were going to wage a full legal nuclear assault, a lawfare assault on us to drain us of financing. And then they were going to compel the British state to launch an official investigation into us as though we're criminals, simply because they didn't like our factual reporting. Now, there have been two developments that are really significant here. One, we had to issue a correction yesterday 
uh, some, some of the emails that we attributed to the intelligence contractor, Emil Khan, between him and Mason, actually were between Mason and the head of the British Ministry of Truth inside the Foreign Office, and his name is Andy Price, someone who's in a secret role, whose name had never been publicly revealed before, uh, our reporting. And so Mason was actually coordinating with someone who appears to be an intelligence official, and these are striking emails. Uh, Price is actually talking about not only going after, uh, you know, let's say Russian state media, which is his official job, but actually going after Consortium News, which is another independent media outlet in the U.S. So that's the first development. The second development is that today, a live discussion that I and Aaron Mate hosted at the Gray Zone on YouTube about this whole saga, which is just like what we're talking about now was removed by YouTube on the grounds of bullying and harassment today. I got that notice uh, about an hour ago, uh, maybe an hour and a half ago. Then an hour ago, I received a notice after my appeal telling me that the appeal had been, that the, that the notice had been reversed, and they restored the video. Then 15 minutes later, I got another notice from YouTube telling me that they had taken the video down again and determined that it was, after all, bullying and harassment. And the reality here is that we're being bullied and harassed by someone with high-level connections who has the power to tell YouTube what to take offline. Uh, so there's a lot here, and there's a lot more coming. Two things. One, do you see parallels here between what's being done here and the plight of Julian Assange? And the second question is, you, this piece in uh, Consortium News says, the emails provide important insight into efforts to involve the British government and appears to settle the question about the relationship between citizen journalism outfit Bellingcat and British intelligence. And Bellingcat was used a couple of weeks ago during a 60 Minutes expose on the Russiagate story. And Bellingcat was being touted by 60 Minutes as this, vi as this viable, reputable source. And we know that Bellingcat is nothing of the sort. Right. Bellingcat is, they never, they'll never tell you on 60 Minutes, which is itself kind of a channel for intelligence-related psycho psycho psychological operations against targets of the U.S. empire, that Bellingcat is funded by the U.S. government through the National Endowment for Democracy, as well as the British government through its foreign office, uh, you know, through foreign office contractors like the Zinc Network and so on. Um, but the point is that Bellingcat is celebrated in Western media as this open source intellig uh, intelligence agency for the people, which, which was what WikiLeaks really was. And the reality is that Bellingcat is the intelligence com community's response to WikiLeaks, and it does what they want, but in the open with a veneer of grassroots journalism. So Bellingcat was invited to this anti-Gray Zone summit by Paul Mason and his spook buddies, and they I, I don't know if the summit ever took place. Uh, basically, what I do know that took place was that these emails were exposed at the Gray Zone. Some of them had Paul Mason referring to Bellingcat as Intel by proxy and exposing their real role. 
and Bellingcat became furious with Paul Mason. You have Bellingcat staff on Twitter insulting him, calling him an idiot who doesn't understand two-factor authentication on his emails and a Walter Mitty-like doofus. And Paul Mason had to basically issue a public apology to them to cover up the reality. He said, oh, Bellingcat is 100% organic and grassroots. It's just ridiculous. So we've, we've caused enormous embarrassment by revealing the truth that we've always known, but with hard evidence here. And they're retaliating. One of the things I find interesting is that the name Nina Jankowicz keeps popping up, that these people who were in the UK working on, you know, trying to take out the gray zone and consortium news, which tells me they were doing good work, um, were at the same time um, talking with and, and passing information with Nina Jankovic saying, well, she said this about course consortium news or she said that. And it appears that there is a like a small group of people in this kind of world of craziness where any and everyone who opposes their narratives are useful idiots or Russian spies, and particularly those such as Consortium News and the Gray Zone who do very detailed and substantiated investigative journalism. Max? Yeah, you see that paranoia in all the Paul Mason emails where he said, oh, this person criticized me, or, you know, the Gray Zone criticized me. I'm I'm now a target of bullying and harassment that's coordinated. Who's behind this? Is it Russia? And he believes that Russia is behind everything or China's behind everything. He released this psychotic mind map of Russian and Chinese influence that features all sorts of grassroots left-wing individuals and organizations from Code Pink to the Morning Star newspaper to Jeremy Corbyn. And then it ends up with the Muslim community and the black community being the useful tools of China and Russia. So this guy's completely gone down the rabbit hole. He's gone entirely mad uh, and is lashing out at anyone who criticizes him. But the frightening thing here is that he has someone deeply embedded in the UK government whose identity is not known to most of the public. And he's furnishing all these allegations to him and asking him to take measures. And so he furnished allegations about consortium news because they questioned the official narrative around the killings in the Ukrainian town of Bucha. And what did Andy Price, his uh, official contact inside the British Foreign Office, do? He contacted Nina Jankowicz, who was at the time the Department of Homeland Security's de facto Minister of Truth. Nina Jankowicz responded, according to Price, that Consortium News is more a case of, in her words, useful idiots than funding, meaning they do it for their beliefs, not because Russia is paying them. And, but that t- that's, that's shocking right there, that there's this level of coordination and communication to take down independent outlets for what they report from the government. It shows you how deeply undemocratic these supposed counter-disinformation warriors really are. They're just official censors. They are exactly what their critics say they are, and this is the proof. So what do you say to Americans who would say, well, that's happening in Britain, and we know because of our of our Constitution and the, and the First Amendment, that could never happen here. So what would you say to those who will want to be dismissive of your reporting saying, well, that's there, not here? Well, it's true that the UK has no First Amendment and weaker protections around free speech. But what are we using to communicate on? What sort of channels are we using? We're using private Silicon Valley channels. Those have become our digital commons. Uh, almost by design in a neoliberal system. There really is no 
public square any longer. And there is no First Amendment protection on YouTube or any of these other Google-owned or um, uh, you know, big tech-owned platforms. You sign a user agreement when you go on there. And in your user agreement, you waive your speech rights. And these supposed counter-disinformation operatives who work inside the DHS, State Department, and other agencies, they are telling YouTube what to remove. We, we've, we are seeing that happen in real time right now. And that's how the First Amendment is being not only circumvented, but permanently subverted. Max, the other thing you, you, uh, you talk about is that it appears that with these people, anyone who disappears, with, who disagrees with their narrative is um, th- there's no possibility that someone could look at the evidence that they're looking at, do any investigation and come to a different conclusion. Basically, if it comes from a source that they deem evil, no, no matter how substantiated it is, then it's bad Russian information or whatever. Or simply if it's in opposition to the narrative, we got about a minute and a half. Yeah, because it's in opposition to the narrative and the ends justify the means because we're in a war. That's kind of the logic that they're operating, the overriding logic here. The war is playing out through uh, conventional warfare that the U.S. is helping to direct on the ground with actual personnel directing the Ukrainian military, supplying it, 155 millimeter howitzers that are bombarding the people of Donetsk today. And it is participating in offensive cyber operations, as we, they've, um, the NSA has admitted. And they're engaged in an information war, which apparently entails cracking down on any independent voice or person that contravenes the official narrative. And that is the part that where, that's where you start to see the shrinking of whatever's left of democracy and the First Amendment. And that that is something they're willing to sacrifice for their insane war. I guess along with uh, our economy and people's ability to purchase affordable food and get to work. Certainly agree with you there. We've been talking with Max Blumenthal. He's an investigative journalist and editor of The Gray Zone. You can go to thegrayzone.com for more. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. President Biden is now arguing that his upcoming visit to Saudi Arabia is related to Israel rather than rising fuel prices in the U.S. Also, The Washington Post has an interesting article about the Israeli murder of legendary journalist Shireen Abu Akla, and we talk about an Israeli attack on the Damascus airport. Joining us to discuss this, we have Laith Marouf. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for having me. Let's start with this. 
The Washington Post examined more than five dozen videos, social media posts, and photos of the uh, shooting of Shireen Abu Akla. They conducted two physical inspections of the area and commissioned two independent acoustic analysts of the gunshots. The reviews suggest an Israeli soldier in the convoy likely shot and killed Abu Akla. The Israeli Defense Forces has said it is possible one of its soldiers fired the fatal shot, but claimed any gunfire was directed towards a Palestinian gunman who was standing between the Israeli soldiers and the journalists. Latham Roof, your thoughts? Yeah, there was no Palestinian gunman between the journalist and the uh, Israeli sniper that shot Shirin Abu Akla in a specific uh, place to avoid both the helmet she had and the body armor. Um, So it was a targeted assassination. The fact is, uh, you know, from day one, all the Palestinian journalists that were in the vicinity of Shirin Abu when she was assassinated uh, reported clearly the story of what had happened and told uh, their witness statement. And the only reason that we need to wait and hear now uh, Washington Post the, does, does such a report is because racism and white supremacy does not take the word of Palestinian uh, witnesses as a fact of matter. We have uh, been already from day one reports uh, from all angles. You know, this is not something that is a uh, an achievement by a newspaper. This, this is a copy paste from all the reports that have happened already a million times over since the assassination of uh, Shirin Abu Akhli, and it's a shame on all the Western media and a shame on the American government who uh, Shirin Abu Akhli supposedly is a citizen of this state um, uh, where her life is insignificant. We hear, um, you know, complaints about Biden going to visit uh, Saudi uh, occupied Arabia because he, uh, you know, the MBS had chopped off, uh, chopped up uh, Khashoggi as a as a reporter. But we will not hear anybody complain for that he will be stopping also in the Zionist colony and uh, visiting a prime minister that under his watch a liquidation, an assassination, a targeted killing of uh, the most prominent uh, Palestinian journalist uh, on the ground. I think it's important to add that she's a Palestinian American and that an American president is ignoring the death of uh, assassination of of one of his citizens. Uh, We have CNN uh, last week or a little earlier stating that it was an assassination. You now have the Washington Post, of all places, coming out and uh, saying that they, I don't think they use the word assassination, but they do say that the evidence indicates that the uh, Zionist government, Israel, was responsible, a a sniper. And still, Tony Blinken is saying, we're waiting for the evidence. Yeah, because uh, we will wait forever, because apparently the only acceptable um, evidence of uh, crimes against the Palestinian people is 
when the Zionists admit it. Otherwise, even if math and chemistry and physics and, <laughs> you know, will and, and all visual and audible evidence tell us that Israel is committing a war crime, uh, we're not allowed to say so until, uh, you know, the actual criminal uh, allows us to say so, which never will happen. So in this situation, the United States, as we see um, Biden uh, going to both uh, this Zionist colony and the Saudi-occupied Arabia in a, in a one-two visit, this indicates to us actually how much value the United States puts on these words of uh, human rights, uh, freedom of speech, uh, journalistic uh, freedoms, and um, and such. And we'll discuss this, I'm, I'm guessing, as we go on with covering those stories. Syria has suspended all, fl- all flights at the Damascus International Airport after an Israeli attack damaged the airport's runway and observation tower. Israel reportedly launched a volley of missiles from the occupied Golan Heights early Friday morning. Syria, Iran, and Russia condemned the attacks. In recent years, Israel has quietly, well, I don't know what they said quietly, but has quietly carried out hundreds of strikes inside Syria targeting Syrian forces as well as, this says, Iranian-backed fighters. It's interesting that this is democracy now. They say quietly. The only reason it's quiet is because the U.S. media is not covering it. But anyway, your thoughts? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, this is a very important story because this is the international airport of Damascus, uh, meaning, uh, you know, this is the oldest capital in the world and the oldest continuously inhabited city. And now it's uh, the only airport that is active in the country uh, for international flights is in Aleppo. And the uh, viciousness in this attack was obviously they didn't use uh, air force, they used surface-to-surface missiles because of the air defenses that uh, Syria has buffed up uh, in the past uh, six months and uh, some of and the use of the S-300 in the last uh, attempted attack by uh, F-15s controlled by the Zionists and so um, and and also the fact that they targeted the uh, arrivals uh, area they targeted the the towers, as you said, and they targeted the tarmacs of uh, the landing strips. Therefore, they're making them uh, and destroyed right now. And uh, it's a big job to do all the work right now. It's not one piece that was destroyed of the airport. It's the whole airport. And this comes at a heightened tension moment in the whole region with the Zionists uh, attempting to loot the gas of uh, the waters uh, in South Lebanon, um, and we heard there the uh, Secretary General of uh, Hezbollah warning that they will be sinking that platform if it loses the gas. Um, I think, um, you know, watching the media coming out of Syria and journalists uh, on uh, on all the social media, and you could see uh, people are uh, really... Um, angry and they're pushing for a response that is in equal uh, level. What what that means is a destruction of uh, quote-unquote Ben-Gurion airport of uh, 
quote unquote Tel Aviv. So uh, that's where we are at, you know, multiple fronts, they're all connected and there's a lot of scores that uh, Syrian government, uh, Hezbollah, the Lebanese government, the Iraqis, Iran, even the Yemenis have scores to settle with the Zionist colony and it's coming at the, the time of uh, this visit of Biden to his two main uh, dogs in the region. And to that point, Biden says Saudi visit about Israel, not gas prices. He answered questions about his potential visit to Saudi Arabia. He said that a meeting with uh, Mohammed bin Salman would be about Israeli security, not energy. Your thoughts, Laith Marouf? I mean, it's all the same, because if there is a war in the region, and this is what the seems to be the Zionist uh, you know, urge, um, then there will be no oil security. <laughs> so I'm guessing, you know, he has to connect the two files and clearly he has no choice but to, uh, as an imperial power, if a war breaks out uh, that the Israelis are itching for, uh, because all of these moves could be delayed by the Zionists, but they are not delaying it. Um, and, uh, they are pushing the United States into a fight. I think that the, the whole empire is not going to be ready for, um, you know, if uh, this largest uh, uh, aircraft carrier, which is what Israel is, is an aircraft carrier for the United States, uh, is sunk, what uh, power will the United States be able to project in the whole of uh, Western Asia? And how is he going to offer... Uh, protection to the Saudis and the Emiratis and their corrupted regimes if uh, he can't protect uh, the Zionists. This is, uh, we're coming at a head in uh, many files in the region. You know, it seems when you look at what's happening with the Biden administration, with the empire, they are, you know, at this standoff with China over Taiwan. They are clearly losing a proxy war with Russia in Ukraine, and they don't know how to do anything but try to manage the narrative, and that's going awry. The um, Their South American contingent has, uh, has uh, let's just say, seems to have abandoned them, and the less you of them are about to get, uh, get voted out. Do the people in the... Um, Arab world and the Persian world see the empire as um, falling apart in the same way that many other people do? Yeah, I think the whole world is actually seeing the collapse of the empire and um, maybe the only people that don't see it are those who live inside the bubble or the majority of those. Um, but the rest of the world is just ready with the popcorn. Um, and uh, the situation, look, is very clear uh, if you want to simplify it to all our audience, and there's something called war games in political science, and you just put uh, what is your strategic goal, and you put the uh, uh, tactical options available to you in formats of one and zero, meaning one win and zero lose. And what is the tactical options in front of the Zionist colony in its goal of uh, a strategic goal of permanency. It's one genocide of the Palestinian people. That's and zero not genocide of the Palestinian people. These are only tactical options open to them. 
And if they commit a mass genocide, not on the scale of a daily slow genocide that they are committing now within uh, an integral part uh, every year or two of, of a big culling, as happens in the wars of with Gaza, um, but in a, that will be the end of the Zionist colony if they do that, if they commit genocide. And if they commit suicide by themselves by ending apartheid, that will be the end of Israel. So, so here's this. This is the reality. They have no options but, uh, uh, you know, committing suicide ultimately. We've been talking with Laith Marouf. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Juan Guaido, Joe Biden's designee for the president of Venezuela, was physically attacked by members of his own opposition coalition while dining out at a restaurant in Venezuela. Also, Bolivian coup leader Janine Añez has been sentenced to 10 years in prison. Joining us to discuss this, we have Margaret Kimberly. She's a Black Agenda Report editor at BlackAgendaReport.com and senior columnist. Margaret, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you so much. So things are looking kind of bleak for old uh, Juan Guaido, former deputy Juan Guaido, and the Venezuelan opposition experienced another embarrassing incident of violence this Saturday carried out by their own anti-Chavista followers who confronted him, pushed him, threw chairs, and insulted him at the Maringa restaurant in San Carlos Cojeda State. He was at the restaurant to have lunch after completing his visit to the city as part of a tour of Venezuela. Margaret, sounds like uh, the uh, old president of Guaido's. Things aren't uh, going so well for him in his campaign to run the country. <laughs> well, the you know, the only really bad thing that can happen is if the U.S. finally dumps him and finally gives <laughs> up on its regime change effort. But as long as the U.S. sticks with him, he will still be this interim president president. Uh, figure who, who uh, was established by Trump and who Biden, by a, yet another Trump policy that Joe Biden uh, continued. And uh, he's had incidents like this before. Usually, of course, it's with the uh, Chavistas. It's, it's, it's with people who are suffering terribly because of U.S. Uh, sanctions that um, uh, his party are they are party to the U.S. doing this to the country in their effort to overthrow uh, the elected uh, Maduro government. But it, it turns out that apparently it's his own folks who were mad at him, and the guesses are that um, they're afraid he will make a deal with Maduro. Um, and the U.S. has, in its own clumsy way, uh, has reached out to Maduro recently because they want Venezuela's oil, one of many unforeseen consequences of sanctioning uh, Russia's oil. And they even lifted sanctions briefly to allow Venezuela to sell or oil to uh, Europe. So apparently there's a split in the opposition about how far to go. Um, it's obviously very embarrassing for him to be literally pushed and chased out of a restaurant, his, his shirt torn. 
the um, Under Secretary of State and then the Secretary of State Blinken going on Twitter saying these attacks against him must must end, although they don't mention that it's his own folks who did it. Um, but it is it is somewhat comical, but it is still a very serious situation for the Venezuelan people. Margaret, let me, uh, following on the, the same line, let me ask you this. Uh, Henry Kissinger is very famous for saying it may be dangerous to be America's enemy, but to be America's friend is fatal. I see a scenario here where the United States feels that Guaido's time has come and passed. <laughs> and, you know, uh, Saddam's time came and went. And it could be that to be America's friend is fatal, and that the only way that the United States sees that it can move forward in its dealings with Venezuela and save face in the process is to take out Juan Guaido. Yes, that could happen. I mean, that will involve a lot of backpedaling, obviously, because they uh, just finished the Summit of the Americas and the U.S. Uh, uh, disinvited Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, which they had no right to do. It's not the U.S. summit. The U.S. was hosting this year. The U.S. had no right to say who could or could not come. But they did that anyway. Uh, they also did not invite uh, uh, Guaido. That would have created too much of a problem. Uh, there was a lot of dissension at the summit, heads of state publicly saying those countries should have been invited, protests, hard questions from journalists, all the things that uh, a host nation does not want to see. But if they want Venezuela's oil badly enough, and that's what Venezuela said, you've got to end the sanctions, if uh, uh, the situation against Russia, this uh, ill-conceived effort to sanction Russia, which actually um, uh, is raising the price of oil and giving Russia more money but causing hardship all over the world, if they should decide that they need um, uh, they need those resources badly enough, yeah, they may say uh, goodbye to Guaido. Hopefully, he won't end up uh, being hanged like uh, Saddam Hussein. Uh, but yes, that's absolutely um, uh, possible. It wouldn't be the first time that the U.S. turned on a client. Let me just quickly say it, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a, in terms of the narrative. It wouldn't be a matter of backpedaling. Because the CIA could play it one of two ways. They would allow the Chavistas or Chavistas in, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Guaido folks in, in Chavista clothing to eliminate him. Then they have the option. They either attack Maduro saying, look what you did to our boy, as, as uh, Don Corleone said in The Godfather, or they could say, well, he's gone now. The, the, his own people did him in. We had nothing to do with this. Let's move forward. So they, if, if they were to do this, they have a couple options here. That, that's, that's my point. Yes. There, well, there are many different options, and who knows what the CIA. They've done it right. all, haven't they? The, the, yes, um, they have. All kind, they could stab him in the back. They could stab him in the front. And we have a media which is more and more compliant with the state and just repeats what uh, whatever they're told to say. So they could do it and they could get away with it. Yes, that's true. The, the other thing I think that I'd like to get a comment for, Margaret, is 
the Biden administration's foreign policy. You, I mean, just debacle after the summit of the Americas was a complete debacle. It was, you know, it was worst possible scenario. Look what's going on in Ukraine for I don't know how long. Oh, the Ukrainians are losing. The Russians are just destroying them. And now it's like, yeah, the Ukrainians are living off one potato in a, a day and they're pretty much out of ammunition. Uh, I think we need a deal. And I mean, everywhere you look, uh, Afghanistan, people hanging off, you know, hanging off the fuselage of a plane taking off from the Kabul airport. This is just another example of how bad the Biden people, I mean, Blinken and his people, you cannot get more. I thought the Trump people were incompetent. You can't get more incompetent than these people, Margaret. Yeah, well, they should all be fired, which means, you know, Biden ought to fire himself, I suppose. (laughs) Um, but their uh, foreign policy is incoherent. They do not have a plan B for anything. They couldn't even handle leaving Afghanistan. All they had to do was leave Afghanistan. They couldn't even secure the airport properly. Uh, Ukraine has been a mix of, you know, endless war propaganda, blue and yellow flags. If you watch the Grammy Awards, you have to look at Zelensky. Uh, all of that, but Ukraine is losing. There is no serious. Uh, observer, no one with credibility who says that Ukraine is winning. They are losing. They are out of ammunition. They are out of equipment. And sending them equipment is useless when Russia is methodically destroying their army. You can't just, for example, send a weapon system today and they know how to use it tomorrow. This takes time. It's time that uh, Ukraine doesn't have and personnel that Ukraine uh, doesn't have. They are taking on very serious casualties, and you're beginning to see uh, Biden, you know, in his usual blurting out things that most presidents have sense enough not to say publicly, like, well, you know, we tried to tell them, but they weren't listening when we said Russia was going to invade. It's the first step in shoving Zelensky uh, under the bus, and if, if Zelensky is even a little bit smart, he'll make a deal uh, with Russia, the NATO um, uh, head, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on his title. Uh, Jen Stoltenberg. They, they, yes, Stoltenberg, uh, uh, the chief of NATO, saying that uh, uh, there should be some sort of negotiation, even the New York Times telling you what the ruling classes are thinking, that there has to be, you know, saying Putin is evil, but still you may have to talk. So they have, you are absolutely correct. They have ruined everything they have touched. The effort to sanction Russia is, in fact, impoverishing the whole world and not hurting Russia that much either, hurting the American people. And they fall back on, you know, stupid slogan like, you know, Putin's price hike. I mean, they're still and they think that's going to save them and it won't. But, yes, this is the worst, the most uh, incompetent foreign policy team I've, I've ever seen. Here's a uh, an article that um, if I were Juan Guaido, I'd be reading this article right now with uh, and shuddering with fear. The first anti-corruption sentencing court of La Paz in Bolivia sentenced former de facto Bolivian president Janine Añez to 10 years in prison in the coup d'etat case on Friday, June 10th. In the case, Añez stood accused of crimes of acting against the Constitution and illegally assuming the presidency of the country in November of 2019 following a right-wing civic, civic military coup that overthrew democratically elected President Evo Morales. I, if I were Juan Guaido, 
Eduardo. I'd be reading that one and trying to find a, maybe a place in, uh, in Miami that I could stay. But at any rate, your thoughts, Margaret Kimberly. Well, it's, I mean, Bolivia, this was uh, great that this coup did not succeed. The Bolivian people rose up immediately, and it was their courage that uh, undid uh, the, unite, uh, the U.S. Um, uh, wrongdoing uh, in that country. And yes, the, one of the coup leaders, she is in jail, although others managed to get away. I guess they got the message sooner, sooner than she did. But the U.S. was backing her, and now she's, um, she's going to go to jail for a long time. And Bolivians are angry, many of them, with the 10-year sentence. They say it's not long enough. So, um, so yes, uh, Kissinger was right, and uh, he should know, right? He's the one who cares how <laughs> being a friend of the U.S. is a very dangerous, a very uh, dangerous thing. So, um, you know, uh, uh, Guaido, of course, is being paid quite handsomely. He's gotten rich being this uh, opposition leader and running around with photo opportunities with the EU leaders, everybody claiming that he's the real president, although... Many Europeans and other countries have started to have stopped saying that at this point. So he, um, you know, his stock has uh, has fallen. And uh, if he's smart, he will be uh, looking for other options rather than assuming that the uh, that the U.S. will continue to back him. Well, and I think it's also important that because, again, this takes us back, as Garland said, to Guaido, to Henry Kissinger's point. It's uh, dangerous to be an American friend. It's deadly to be its uh, to be it's deadly. It's, uh, it's dangerous to be its enemy and deadly to be its friend. And because you can also go to Colombia and you can look at former President uh, Alvaro Uribe and the 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 bribery trials and tribulations that he is facing. So again, a lot the, the folks that were the tip of the American spear, many of them in these Central and South American countries, are now being held to account in the United States is just washing his hands and saying, well, those are your politics. Uh, sorry. And uh, you, you guys are on your own. Sure they do. I mean, that's why people were hanging off planes in Afghanistan. They were, <laughs> these are people who helped the U.S., translators and drivers and other highly placed people who were just left. It's like, gee, sorry, good luck with that. So, yes, um, this can always, always happen. Uh, you know, the U.S. is the rogue state. I just, just think it's funny. The U.S. talks about rogue states and out-of-control countries. Well, the, you know, that's pure projection. That's exactly what the U.S. is. And uh, sometimes it doesn't work. Um, and we, but we are beginning to see uh, President Maduro of Venezuela, for example, is in Iran um, um, just uh, signing an agreement, a 20-year cooperation agreement, an economic agreement with Iran, uh, while Juan Guaido is being chased out of uh, <laughs> restaurants. So every effort by the U.S. to crush movements, to crush governments, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And that's why they can't get every country in the world to line up against Russia, because it's not in the interest of the rest of the world to just do what the U.S. wants. And we are seeing that in action. And from the looks of the people in the, the people in that restaurant with Juan Guaido, they weren't in the mood for giving him a trial. When I looked and I saw a guy had a chair up in the air 
I mean, literally, a guy was running towards him with a chair, and I'm like, oh, if they don't get him out of here, he's, he's going to get his wig pushed back, as they say on the street. At any rate, Margaret Kimberly's editor and senior columnist at Black Agenda Report and author of Presidential, Black America and the Presidents. Thanks a lot, Margaret. Thank you both. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. More than 300 doctors have written a letter to the U.K. Home Secretary, Preeti Patel, demanding that she deny a judicial request to extradite Julian Assange to the United States, arguing that such a move would be, quote, medically and ethically unacceptable. Joining us now to discuss discuss this story, we have Steve Poikin, and he's a national organizer for Action for Assange. Steve, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Great to be here, Garland. And as do I, Steve, I understand you have a story on, I mean, excuse me, you have a, a show on rockfin.com. That's R-O-K-F-I-N, Rockfin. It's, uh, I always say it's like YouTube, only better. What is your, what, what's your, uh, what's your uh, show on Rockfin? Uh, I have two. You can go to rockfin.com slash AM wake up or rockfin.com slash slow news day. All right, and I'm rockfin.com forward slash Garland Nixon. Doctor's orders ahead of the U.K. Home Secretary's decision on whether to extradite, extradite Julian Assange to the United States. A group of more than 300 doctors representing 35 countries have told Preeti Patel that approving his extradition would be medically and ethically unacceptable. Your thoughts, Steve Poikinen. Uh, I, I've had the chance to get to know and interview Dr. Lisa Johnson, who's been integral in organizing this campaign from the ground up from its inception. The, this is something that um, serious people within the medical community have uh, become increasingly concerned about over the last three years now. Um, Julian Assange was originally uh, originally evaded extradition on the grounds of his mental health, being the fact that he had demonstrated that he was committed to taking his own life if they ordered uh, extradition, was visited by Nils Melzer, who was at, at the time the, the rapporteur on torture and human rights abuses for the United Nations. He interviewed him with a couple of doctors. They had determined that he had been uh, severely psychologically tortured, uh, this is a man who, whose mental and physical health has suffered tremendously over the last decade of illegal and arbitrary detention, not just in Belmarsh prison, but in the embassy as well. Uh, and they're simply saying it, not only is it torture on multiple levels to continue the extradition, but you are in real time, minute by minute, destroying a human being. Uh, and hopefully, <laughs> Not that I'm, you know, over enthusiastic about a positive outcome, but hopefully, if nothing else, it at least generates enough media attention to where more people start asking questions of Pretty Patel. I think the language that is used in circumstances such as these are very, very important, such as when the Chinese defense minister says that uh, 
interfering in Taiwan will be a path to death. I think that language is very important. Here you have these 300 doctors saying that they don't want Priti Patel to be complicit in the slow motion execution of Julian Assange. And they say that any extradition would constitute negligence. I think this language is very, very important, very, very strong, and that it, it, it is not to be ignored. Well, I, I, I think that when it comes to making a, a plea for someone's life, especially someone whose journalistic work has helped bring closure to so many people from all over the world in terms of finding, you know, out the concrete information about loss of loved ones because of U.S. or U.K. war crimes. There, there's it. It's hard to uh, it, after three years of, of being like on the ground floor uh, of this fight, it's kind of hard to put into, you know, a, a small segment, the amount of different influences and, uh, just overall I don't, tremendous weight uh, of pressure that's on Julian, on his legal team. The, all of the pressure that we have been trying to generate against <laughs> Pretty Patel, against this extradition, which is based off of a World War One era law where we're trying to... Uh, I've said this before, and I'm all over the place a little bit here because I'm getting a little bit worked up, but I've said this before. The the U.S. and the U.K. believe that rule of law doesn't matter because they can just turn around and say, oh, well, we set a new precedent. That is what has happened with Julian Assange every step of the way. At, at the international level, at the U.K. level, the U.S. level, the Swedish level, the Australian level, um, internet, the every conception of rule of law has been trampled on and at each point they turn around and say well it's okay because this is a new precedent this is something we get to do now and if that's the case why what does what does law matter at all (laughs) anywhere if someone can just turn around if the government can turn around and say oh well that doesn't matter anymore because we decided this is what happens now I want to get your thoughts on um, Australia, particularly because you know recently there was an election, and someone who was felt to be the left to the left of Morrison won, and there were people who were hoping beyond all hope that um, this new. Uh, prime minister in Australia would step up to the plate and do something to help Julian Assange. But I think of two words, Gulf Whitlam. Whitlam. Um, And that was 1975. He was an Australian prime minister who had the unmitigated gall to try to show a bit of uh, independence. And the CIA and the MI6 uh, cooed him. Uh, So supposed ally, the, uh, the United States overthrew the government of Australia and replaced them with someone who they felt was more friendly to support the things they wanted they wanted them to support. So so I felt all along there's no possibility that um, the new prime minister, if he wanted to change things or do something differently, would be given that um, option. And if he did, then uh, he'd be cooed just like anybody else. But your thoughts on the Australian prime, the you know, change in government and how that can or cannot affect Julian Assange? There, there's a relationship that's more important than the one that the prime minister has with his constituents. And that's the one of the five eyes intelligence sharing apparatus. And that is never going to be dismantled. What the former UK colonies in in 
the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, um, all share is a, a fervent desire for control of all global information. And they work with each other or they work against each other in order to meet these needs. They'll take out Albo if they need to. They'll have him replaced in a heartbeat. The position of prime minister from its inception is public face of the government. This isn't necessarily someone who ultimately, at the end of the day, is going to be making the decisions. That's just the person who's supposed to receive the blame. He's interchangeable with dozens, if not hundreds, of other people. But the thing that, that matters is that that intelligence apparatus remains in place. Going back to the language in this piece in the Independent Australia, they talk about Julian Assange being tortured to death in a British prison. How can this be? Do you get the sense that this language is generating additional attention, generating additional support, or is this now just falling on deaf ears? So this has been that specific word, torture, and its application as to what was happening and what has been happening to Julian has been a point of contention in the, the community for a while now. And there was this sense over the last year and a half or so, two years of, OK, well, we don't we don't necessarily want to attribute the word torture because we're at the same, in the same breath, asking the torturers, the people we're accusing for torture, for compassionate release of a prisoner, and that doesn't make a lot of sense. But you can't, you can't rationalize away reality. The, you know, the, the UN Rapporteur on Torture determined that he was a victim. The, the man was kept without warm clothes in his very cold jail cell for months. He was putting books in the window to try to block some of the cold air from coming in. This is a person who had the keys glued down on his keyboard, was denied visitation with his family, was denied visitation with his legal team. He was a man who the entire world knows was spied on by Mike Pompeo's CIA because Mike Pompeo has a, a summons to appear in a Spanish court over it. And yet, because of the the amount of time that WikiLeaks has been off of the table and not operating at full capacity, because of the massive propaganda effort to ruin this man's name and take the focus off of what the work proved, there's, I, I kind of feel like using the word torture a couple of days before Pretty Patel is supposed to make her decision may not be enough. I, I feel like we should have been yelling it the whole time. Well, the other thing I think that's fine, uh, I find of great consequence is the idea that it came out in court that the U.S. intelligence agencies considered, contemplated at the highest levels, an extrajudicial kidnapping and assassination of Julian Assange. Yet when these same people went to court and gave their promise that if he came over here, they wouldn't let anything happen to him, the judge took that as, uh, you know, in, into judicial notice. They said they were thinking about kidnapping and murdering the man, and then they're like, yeah, but if he gets over here, you can trust us. He's in good hands. Nothing will happen to him. And the judge is like, yeah, yeah, sounds good to me. Let's go with that, Steve. 
Well, the judge needed a promotion, and she got one. She did. Um, the, but, uh, the, the high, for the high court to sit there and make a ruling on assurances that only cover post-conviction and have nothing to do with pretrial detention in Alexandria Detention Center, where Chelsea Manning already attempted suicide, where a number of people attempt to take their lives and successfully take their lives every single year, or the Manhattan Correctional Center, where Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. Those are the two destinations that he would have waiting to go to kangaroo court in the Eastern District of Virginia. No point in the, the court order to um, extradite based on assurances is that pretrial period covered. So this is all based on an assumption of guaranteed conviction in the first place. At that point, why are you even pretending to have a trial? We're now a couple of days before uh, the decision from Patel. At this stage of the game, does the United States even really want to extradite him? Based Because the, the, the attention, and we've been asking this for quite a while, the attention that would be brought upon the United States if he were to set foot on U.S. soil, does the United States really want that to happen? No. No, I don't think they do. I I. I think their whole their hope the entire time is that the extended period in Belmarsh prison would ultimately do him in. Uh, they, but at the same time, they have almost a guaranteed assurance from Assange himself that he won't let himself be extradited. So if they force it, they're forcing his hand. If they force the extradition, they're also forcing whatever backlash may come their way as a result of it. I, I, I don't know if you can, I honestly don't know if you can get enough people in the United States together to care about press freedom in a way that isn't partisan, but I would like to give it a try if it comes down to it. But no, I don't think the Biden administration wants them here. They, I don't know if you guys have noticed, the Biden administration has a lot of problems right now. <laughs> oh really? Yeah. No. That's all they've got. You know well, what? We're gonna hey, we're gonna have to schedule another another time with Steve to talk about. Yeah, that. we can figure it out. <laughs> we'll have to root around a bit. We've been talking with Steve Poygan, national organizer, action for Assange, and you can find him all over the place. Search for him, rockfin.com, R-O-K-F-I-N.com. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Scott Ritter argues that the Biden administration's belligerent aggressive policy towards China is setting the U.S. empire on a collision course with the Asian superpower. China's defense chief has also sent the strongest warning yet to U.S. representatives, arguing that they will not hesitate to go to war in defense of Taiwan reunification. Joining us now to discuss this matter, we've got former U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq and author Scott Ritter. Scott, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Well, thanks for having me. Scott writes, 
Chinese officials have made it clear that their one China policy regarding Taiwan is founded on a constitutionally mandated principle of so-called peaceful reunification. War, Chinese officials say, is a measure of last resort only to be employed to prevent the fact of Taiwan's secession from China or when possibilities for peaceful reunification have been completely exhausted. But current U.S. policies on Taiwan appear designed to push China to the brink, raising the prospect of armed conflict. Scott Ritter, your thoughts? No, I mean, it speaks for itself. I, I think the United States is um, is hurtling towards a war with China that the United States doesn't realize is about to happen. Um, our policies are 100 percent in contravention of, uh, you know, what um, what China will accept. China has made it clear that under no circumstances will it tolerate either the Taiwanese government declaring independence, uh, nations um, treating Taiwan as if it were independent, and nations uh, facilitating um, you know, policies which encourage Taiwan to declare independence. And the United States, of course, is treating Taiwan very much like an independent nation. I mean, why else would senior U.S. government officials continuously fly there? Why would we... Um, provide them with the uh, you know with this military assistance if our one china policy is truly a one china policy and um you know why would the president of the united states continue continue to say you know you know imbecilic things such as uh if china were to attack taiwan uh that we would come to taiwan's defense um i think again that encourages taiwan to say well hey maybe we can flex our muscles maybe we can withdraw because america is coming to our defense China has said enough is enough. We literally will not tolerate any more of this. This isn't me speaking. These are the senior most Chinese officials who have said we are ready to go to war right now, today, this hour, this minute, this second, if we have to. So back off, America. I don't think America got it yet. So I, I, I actually think that, you know, one day we're going to wake up to find out that uh, China has uh, gone all out, and uh, there's a war in uh, Taiwan that will be, you know, as big or worse than the conflict we currently see in Ukraine. To your point, and I, I may be asking you just to reiterate what you've already said, but I don't think that people in this country really understand, and Garland and I have been saying this, and you've been repeating it, that people in this country really don't understand how significant this language is, because the Chinese uh, defense minister said, those who pursue Chinese independence will definitely come to no good end. So he's not only talking about military action, I interpret that to mean those who champion political dialogue that could result in that will come to no good end. He said, China will smash you to smithereens. That is not normal political Chinese dialogue or rhetoric. And so I think that those who ignored Vladimir Putin are now finding out that Putin wasn't joking, and those who ignore China will soon come to understand China isn't joking. They don't bluff. No, China's 
definitely not bluffing here. And I think the importance of the language, the tone being set by the um, the Chinese uh, defense minister and all others who speak on this issue is uh, is important because the Chinese are normally known for being um, you know understated. <laughs> yeah, you know, they they you, you you don't know what they're saying. I mean, they they speak and you're scratching your head, going, "Is that a yes or a no?" I don't know what's going on with the Chinese. Uh, there is literally no doubt here what's going on. And I think the reason is that China um, is giving the United States one last chance to back down, one last opportunity to deviate from the course that it's taken. And, and, and the words are important. We will smash you to smithereens. It's not just Taiwan. You know, the United States has been uh, making a habit of sailing its fleet through the Taiwan Straits, uh, bringing the fifth fleet up to um, you know, Taiwan shores to flex its naval muscles. And uh, China has also been in the business of building uh, the area denial weapons necessary to sink every ship in the U.S. fleet that comes within striking range of Taiwan. And um, I, I think the, 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 the defense minister is saying that not only will we take over Taiwan, but if you dare come near us while we're doing this, We'll sink every ship you got. We'll shoot every airplane down. We're not going to ask any questions. It's over. You have made a mistake, America. Your president opened his big mouth. Your secretary of state has been mealy-mouthed in trying to walk that back. You sent Senator Tammy Duckworth to Taiwan, a sponsor of legislation that would that seeks to put permanent U.S. military stockpiles on Taiwanese soil so that American troops could fly in and marry up with this stuff and defend Taiwan. That will never happen. That will never happen. Um, and, and China is making it quite clear. Hopefully people are getting the message, but they're not. We still he called, it, he called it a path to death. Oh, it is a path to death. It's a path to death of hundreds of thousands of Taiwanese and tens of thousands of Americans. I don't think America understands that when a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier goes down, 6,000 Americans go down with it. And given the uh, lethality of modern weapons, there isn't going to be a titanic moment where everybody gets to run to the, the ship, you know, to the, to the lifeboats and get off. The ship is going down. Right now, boom, they're all dead. 6,000 Americans that quick, and every single ship that's in the carrier battle group, so we can multiply, we can add, say, another seven, 8,000. So that's 14,000 Americans dying instantaneously. We've never seen that death toll. Pearl Harbor didn't generate that death toll. Nothing has generated that death toll. China will generate that death toll. And, um, I mean, this is just a statement of fact. So I, I hope there's people, you know, calling the White House right now and saying, dial it back. Stop. Cease and desist. Tell Taiwan, stick it in your ear. We're not coming to your assistance. You're on your own. We're not giving you any military equipment. Do whatever you need to send a clear signal to China that we aren't looking for a conflict. Because guess what? China is. They're fed up. They're done. 
Here's the other thing. You know, there, if you talk about great power politics, there are three great powers right now in the world, the U.S., China, and, and Russia. And one of them is pumping weapons and belligerent rhetoric into, the, into a uh, border state of the other two. So in theory, the, the, the U.S., uh, a lot of the US, you know, senators, et cetera, have said we're in a proxy war with Russia right now. We've got to keep up our proxy war with Russia. So you're talking about the U.S. basically starting a war with Russia and China. I would imagine there are people in the Pentagon right now who are trying to pull the reins back who are not very happy about this. There better be. I mean, if they're professionals and they are doing their job. They should be not just whispering in Biden's ear, but screaming in his ear, stop. I mean, look, it, it, it's clear what's happening in, in Ukraine right now. Russia is winning decisively. Uh, this could drag on for weeks, maybe months, uh, depending on how long we want to drag it on. Uh, you know, Ukraine just sat down with a meeting of NATO people and gave them the ultimate fantasy uh, wish list. We want a thousand artillery pieces. We want 500 modern main battle tanks. We want, we want, we want, we want, we want. Now, for NATO to give this to Ukraine, they would literally have to strip bare their, 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 their barracks and say, here, here's everything we got, guys. We got nothing left. Um, and, 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 and the fact is they can't do that because they've got to have something if they're going to call themselves a military alliance. The, the the, the, the reality is Russia is going to win this, win this huge, huge. And uh, the question is, what kind of off-ramp is there going to be? Now that we have defined it as a proxy war, we need to understand we are losing this war. So it's not just going to be Ukraine that's destroyed as a modern nation state with its military absolutely annihilated. It's going to be us sitting there saying, and NATO is going to be looking and saying, Hey, uh, you fought that proxy war with Russia and you lost. You lost. And now you want us to do what? Build up on the border with Russia and do what? Be prepared. Are you high? I mean, this isn't going to happen. And now, now, so we're losing in Europe. And if you want to know an area where we're even weaker than in Europe, it's the Pacific. And we're, we're setting ourselves up for the kind of defeat you don't walk away from. I mean, we call ourselves, you know, we are the United States of America. We're an oceanic power. We have the Pacific and the Atlantic that buffer us and protect us because of our mighty fleets. We're going to lose the fifth fleet. We're going to lose it all if we try to reinforce Taiwan. And how do you walk away from that? And here's the danger. You don't. What happens when you lose that kind of manpower and ships? You go nuclear. You have to make China pay, punish them. And man, we just now crossed a threshold that we don't even want to get into. So literally, Joe Biden is insane. He is insane. I warned America about this man before he got elected. I warned America every single day that he's been president. This is the same lunatic that sat in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and had his fantasies of American glory. And, oh, I'm a warrior. My son Biden's a warrior. Was a warrior. Hunter would be a warrior, but he snorts cocaine. Oh, you know. This guy is literally the worst person possible to be commander in chief, and he's going to bluff and bumble our way into not one, but two disastrous wars. And surprisingly, the one that's going to destroy the earth isn't the one in Europe, because Vladimir Putin is a mature man. 
he ain't going to start a nuclear fight, especially when he's winning the conventional fight. It's in the Pacific, not because China's going to go nuclear, but because we will have no choice but to go nuclear if China sinks the Fifth Fleet. Two things. One, this Global Times article says that from the Trump administration to Biden's, the U.S. has continually used the Taiwan question to serve its strategy of containing China. Well, I don't know how successful that China containment strategy has worked up to this point. And quickly, you say that the United States will lose in the Pacific. Most people think that's our strongest hand in the Pacific. So explain how it's not. Well, first of all, all we have is a fleet. And um, if there's one lesson that came out of the Black Sea um, you know, the sinking of the flagship, the Black Sea Fleet, the Moskva, it says that ships sink quickly when they get hit by missiles. Um, duh. And all the United States has right now is a fleet. Yeah, we got some islands with some airplanes on. They got to fly thousands of miles to get to Taiwan, and they'll get shot down before they get anywhere close. The fleet has been traditionally, you know, that symbol of American power, but the fleet is outdated. It's it's anachronistic. It doesn't it doesn't do what it's supposed to do anymore because the closer the fleet gets to the shores of Taiwan, the closer it gets to the shores of China, the more certainty is its fate, which is to be sunk violently with absolute totality in terms of loss of life. The, the U.S. fleet um, may be good to go to ports and raise the flag and have U.S. sailors go off and spend their money, you know, buying drinks and hookers. But when they get back on and they go back out to the ocean and they try to become war fighters, um, they may be good flexing their muscle against the Taliban or the Iraqis or the Syrians. You bring that fleet close to China's shores and it simply no longer is militarily viable. It will be sunk. It will be sunk instantly. So the people who say that that's our strength, they don't understand the reality of the current military situation in the world today. We've been talking with Scott Ritter, former U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you are informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We are out.